My name is Joe Toscano, and I have a confession to make. I'm addicted to emergency medicine, but I'm in love with urgent care. I've been doing both for almost 30 years, but this isn't about me. Over those years, I've been privileged to work with and meet many of the people and personalities who have formed and shaped the specialty of urgent care medicine. For a long time, many people have felt that their voices and experiences should be made available to anyone and everyone practicing urgentology. Well, now there's a chance to do just that in a series of podcasts that I hope you'll enjoy and learn from. Thank you for listening. Hey, I'm I'm really excited uh, here to have Mike Weinstock inaugurating our urgentology podcast. Mike's uh, been involved in emergency medicine and urgent care for for many, many years. It's a privilege and an honor to uh, interview him and um, I hope you're going to enjoy this. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really honored to be here and part of the inaugural broadcast. So, mm-hmm. uh, so really, really uh, a nice honor for me. Mike, I think before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How'd you decide to go into medicine in general and what led you to emergency medicine? You know, that's an interesting question in the sense that my father is a ophthalmologist. Both of my grandfathers were general surgeons. And my great grandfather was what they referred to as a surgeon barber in Russia. I think he was the kind of guy that you never really wanted to go to because you knew if you're going to him, it was probably involved like a burr hole or something (laughs) like that. But I come from a long line of doctors and honestly, from a very young age, probably, I mean, four or five, six years old, I knew I wanted to be a doctor and I never in my entire life thought about doing anything else except for being doctor. That's fantastic. Not even a barber surgeon. <laughs> Especially <laughs> not a barber surgeon. <laughs> that's, a, that's a long line of, uh, of physicians. That's fantastic. How about, how about emergency medicine? Is that something you thought about uh, from the beginning or once you went through uh, medical school, kind of no, gravitated no, I, toward it? I hadn't really. However, you know, I'm thinking back on this last year with COVID and some of the struggles that people have had, and, and I totally get it. I never thought about practicing medicine behind a mask and goggles and PPE and all this type of stuff. But when I just think of the general practice of medicine and emergency medicine, and in some ways, many ways, urgent care medicine also, I don't only enjoy the medicine part about it, but I enjoy the flow. I enjoy running the room. I enjoy managing the time and directing resources. And I, I sort of equate it in some way to playing guitar, which, which I do also. I play in a, a blues band. I play guitar and harmonica and sing. But in some ways, I equate it that way because when you're first learning, you know, the first finger is on the second string, first fret, and the second finger is on the third string string, second fret, that type of thing. When you're thinking about the dynamics of it, you can't really practice the art. But once you get the medicine, and look, I don't know everything in any way, shape, or form. However, I feel that for most things, I'm able to get it right, get the medicine right, get the treatment right. And then you can get into the fun part of medicine, which is the human interaction, which is the things like running the room, which is managing the acuity or trying to make sure you spot some of the rare and life-threatening potential causes of things. So, you know, a little bit more of a window into my soul is that though I didn't know I would go into emergency medicine, it totally suits me, that type of lifestyle. I love the shifts. I love the evenings. I love the fact that someone might pull up into the ambulance bay and yell, my boyfriend's not breathing in the back seat. I love that. That's not for everybody, but for me, it's the perfect type of medicine. That is a fantastic analysis and very cool. I think, yeah, you, you really summarized, I think the, uh, 
the excitement and interest of it. Uh, it's, it's medicine, but it's also uh, a culture, I think, that goes along with acute care. How about, how about educating? You're a fantastic educator. What do you like about that part of it beyond taking care of patients? How, how does that turn you on educating about emergency medicine and specifically uh, urgent care? You know, it's funny you asked the question because honestly, like a week ago, I was remembering a time as a third year medical student at Ohio State and making rounds. It was like those rounds that start at seven in the morning and you're on your feet until one in the afternoon, totally painful. <laughs> but I remember looking at my resident and thinking as a medical student, man, I can't wait until I'm in that position of having that amount of knowledge and being able to hopefully give that to someone else. And, and I say this in the only most self-deprecating of fashion is that because I understand the fact that it's difficult to incorporate all these types of things, not only the pathophysiology, but the diagnosis, the physical exam, putting it together, differential diagnosis, prioritizing, and trying to come up with a management plan that sort of walks the balance of not risking, not, not missing serious disease and not over-testing to the point that you potentially could harm a patient. When I think about those types of things, you know, it didn't come naturally to me. I mean, it doesn't to anybody, but I felt like when I started learning those lessons, what I wanted to do is I wanted to give that information to others because, you know, you can order every test in the book and sometimes it could make things worse. I mean, without a doubt. However, you know, you can also potentially harm patients in that way. And to me, the motivation of teaching is not only the enjoyment that I have from it, but hopefully improving patient care, eliminating waste, working towards expediency, and also hopefully working towards satisfaction of the urgent care provider of the emergency medicine provider at the bedside. Because in the fact, the fact of the matter is, this is a fun thing to do. I mean, we can leave our jobs at the end of the day, hopefully knowing that we did something good. And I'm not diminishing anything that's being done by someone that, you know, pours concrete on, on a highway or, or that uh, uh, is a stockbroker managing people's finances. I mean, all those things are, are great jobs. However, we are working in a profession where we have a tremendous potential to help others. And when you think about what gives most people satisfaction in life, to me, that's it. And for me to be able to help educate and help improve the ability of others to do that, education is no brainer for me, Joe. Yeah. Incredibly humble, Mike. And if I knew anything about your musical talents, I would, I would have had to bring some instruments on here. Maybe we'll do that next time. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you talked about uh, efficient practice and being able to practice as, as best as you can. And I think one of the things that made me uh, think about in addition to, you know, resource utilization and arriving at a diagnosis and patient experience is reducing risk. And you are the uh, urgent care risk reduction, medical legal expert, I would have to say. In addition to just clinical education, how did you become interested in the medical legal aspects of, of daily practice? You know, when I was working at Mount Carmel St. Anne's, I worked there for 21 years. It's a very busy, almost 80,000 visits a year emergency department in Columbus, Ohio. The last four and a half years, I was the, the chairman there. But before that time, I was on the peer review committee and I found these cases, these great cases mm. that involved patients who had come in and been sent home and then had come back, had bounced back to the emergency department. 
And of course, there were some bad outcomes. And you know, sometimes it wasn't a bad outcome, but more of an inconvenience, but oftentimes it was a bad outcome. And then some of those eventually led to legal sequelae. And it was really fascinating to me to think about some of the ways that we change our practice, not necessarily for the best interest of the patient, but because we want to try to decrease a legal risk. In fact, there's one person that I work with, an emergency physician, and he said, and I'll, I'll never forget it. He said, Mike, I'm willing to bankrupt the entire medical system of the United States to avoid one more lawsuit. And on the surface Whoa. of that, that is like so <laughs> objectionable, so like selfish and so unkind to think that you would do that. But it really indicated to me as I thought more about it of the deep, impact that it has to us as clinicians, as physicians, NPs, PAs, who are trying to do our best, but yet we have to think about the fact that this could legally somehow come back to bite us, even though we are trying to do the best thing. So it was a really interesting thought to me. And I wrote an article that was published just a few years ago. And the article was, was titled um, something like, of course, mm -hmm. I should remember this, right? You know, but it's like, <laughs> you know, how to balance the long-term health of the patient with the short-term legal concern of the clinician. Mm -hmm. And it's a question that through my career has really perplexed me because we do that all the time. We not only think about, about what's best for the patient, but we sometimes think about that it impacts back on us, whether it's Prescani scores, whether it's legal implications, maybe it's in speaking with your director, all those things play into our medical decision-making and not always only what's in the best interest of the patient. I think that paper that you wrote was after the, uh, the chest pain um, study, maybe. Yeah, when, right, right. Yeah, yeah when you had, uh, had talked about uh, you know, over-admitting and overworking up a lot of us, I think, uh, associate excessive risk with not doing things. And certainly if you don't do the right thing, that risk is there. But you alluded to it earlier that sometimes doing too much in terms of testing can cause harm as well. And I think the paper that you um, did with a couple of other folks uh, highlighted that. And, and in that group, the patients who had harm, and there, there wasn't a lot, but all of it was iatrogenic. Um, right. So that was very interesting. Yeah, it was really fascinating. Risk. Yeah, yeah. It, mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a fascinating paper. In fact, we had uh, one of the preeminent emergency medicine physicians, Scott Weingart, I had him come Scott, to my hospital yeah. to speak. And before that time, I invited other people out there because he was going to be talking about different things, sepsis, but also chest pain. And one of the hospital chest pain like data collection people said, hey, you might be interested in this information. And she gave me this information of these tens of thousands of patients who had been admitted to the hospital after two negative troponins, mm -hmm. a non-ischemic interpretable EKG and non-concerning vital signs. And we found that of the, after we teased it down to these 7,266 patients, there were only four patients that ended up having what we termed as a clinically relevant adverse effect um, and uh, event. And, you know, it, it just really highlighted, and, and Joe, I'm super impressed that, that you that you remembered that paper, and uh, I, I really appreciate that. But um, it, it was a very interesting exercise because it really showed that what we sometimes do, that risk of over-testing can definitely cause harm with patients. So that's one of the main things I want to sort of put out there as far as this sort of legal part of this discussion with you today is doing what's best for the patient usually by itself 
treating the patient with respect, treating the family member with respect, explaining things to them, usually those things by themselves are going to be the most important legally protective things as opposed to doing a lot of testing, administering unnecessary medications, and generally overdoing it as opposed to, again, treating a patient the way that we'd want to be treated ourselves. Mm, absolutely. Balance for sure. So you, you talked about the, the bounce back book, and I think there were a couple in that series, right? Two or three? Yeah. So books? we have three. Yeah. Um, the first one is just the classic bounce backs, 30 mm -hmm. cases, 31 now with the new edition, the updated edition. Second is a medical legal one. It's sort of funny. We structured to be, or I structured to be 10 patients that you see in one day that are all non-concerning. And then over the next couple of months, you receive Actually. 10 letters in the mail because they all turn into bad outcomes. The third one is a pediatrics. And the fourth one, I just got a text today is at the printer, the proofs have been accepted. So later this month's bounce backs critical care should be out, which is very, very exciting for us. Congratulations, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Can you, um, I'm sure that tons of work, tons of work to write one book and uh, all four of those out there. What, if you could think back over the time, what, what was one of the challenges and one of the joys associated with writing and publishing those books? You know, the very first one, I had this idea and we'd done these bounce back cases at our M&M conferences and I knew I needed to have someone big. So I sent a letter, like a paper letter. You might remember those with like a pen and there's like this like white thing that's like eight and a half by 11. It's very flat. It's called a piece <laughs> of paper and you can write on it and put an envelope with a stamp. It's just amazing that we used to do that. Right? <laughs> but I, I sent this letter to Greg Henry, who was really at the time one of the preeminent emergency medicine physicians. And I didn't get any response. I sent another letter. I sent an email. And finally, I called him and he answered the phone. He's like, what? What do you want? You know, I said, I got this idea. He says, well, that's a sort of an interesting idea. So I put the first book out there and as much fun, and I put that in quotations as it was in writing the book, it really opened up a lot of other opportunities for me. I had cases from that book on MRAP, which mm -hmm. was the very big emergency medicine <clears throat> broadcast, which now goes out to 30,000 emergency medicine physicians and clinicians around the world. Mm -hmm. And then out of that came Urgent Care Wrap. And now we're in an Urgent Care Wrap our sixth year and have you know thousands and thousands and thousands of subscribers. And it's really turned into this urgent care community, this emergency medicine community that we can have comments, we can have commentary, we can bounce things off each other. So in a lot of ways, as fun as it's been writing the books, and as much as I've learned from writing them and the other clinicians who have contributed to them, more so than that, it's really been a, a medium to open up this national community for urgent care and emergency medicine, and really start a conversation about some pretty difficult cases and the best way to manage them and the best thing to do for patients. Well, it has certainly done that, Mike. You've opened a lot of conversations and a lot of doors and uh, the sense of community in emergency medicine and urgent care is what is it is. What it is. Um, I think a lot because of you and others who are doing similar work. I think I could talk to you for hours and hours, um, right. but we all have short <laughs> attention spans, I'm told. And um, I, I want to just close and maybe uh, I think of you as a, a philosopher as much as a physician. Um, based on your experience, 
What piece of advice would you give folks, acute care clinicians, urgent care clinicians specifically, about achieving success and happiness, both in practice and in their lives? I, I love that question. And I've thought about this so much because there is a lot of burnout. I mean, of course, there is. this is a tough job that we're doing. And we all understand that, especially in the age of COVID. But the main thing that I have come to, not only in the practice of medicine, but in life, is balance. And there has to be a balance between the care that we give our patients and what we give to them emotionally and physically and time-wise and what we need to give to ourselves, need to give to our family, to our friends, to our, our pets, our parents, you know, mm -hmm. and we have to have that balance. We have to be able to say, if we can, that we are going to leave work at work. When we're at work, we're going to be focused. We're going to leave home at home as much as we can. And we're going to have that balance in our life. I mean, if I won the lottery for $10 million, I would keep working, Joe. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. enjoy it. I enjoy what I'm doing. And I think if we can view our jobs in that way, in the way that we would want to do that, even if for the money, even if for the, you know, the steam or the, the challenge of it, that'll get us back in a lot of ways to why I'm sure every one of us went into medicine in the first place. It might sound sort of cheesy, but mm -hmm. we do. We do want to help people. I mean, again, yep. it's done sort of cheesiness alert, right? You know, mm -hmm. we want to do what's best for others. And practicing defensive medicine, being scared of legal implications, man, if we can treat patients like we would our family members and make sure they know, and look, it's okay to do a little bit of scripting. I'm treating you the same way that I treat a family member. If we can do that and be honest with them, to me, that is you know, not just playing notes on a guitar, but playing a chord, playing a song, that is practicing the art of medicine. Fantastic advice, Mike. Well, thank you very much. We look forward to the fourth bounce back uh, edition, fourth bounce, bounce back book coming out. And I didn't, I didn't know the first one has come out in a second edition. I'm gonna have to, have to grab that one too. Did a, did a 10th anniversary update. I thought it'd take like a month and it was about a year and a half, but you know. Yeah, it's 10 years old <laughs> though. Happens. It's 10 years since the yellow bounce, the first yellow bounce back. Right, right, right. Yeah, so so we got a, a new fresh one, even an extra, extra case in there too. <laughs> That's great. Congratulations on that. Mike, thank you so much for, for speaking with me. We look forward to hearing you more on Urgent Care Wrap and EM Wrap and um, webinars and all the stuff that you do. Thank you again. Joe, thanks so much for having me. It's been a, it's been a Take pleasure. Care. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Please be on the lookout for more conversations with more of the very interesting people from the past, present, and future of urgent care medicine on the Urgentology Podcast. If you have any questions or suggestions, please email me at jtoscano64 at gmail.com. And thank you again for listening. <laughs>